You've got a feel for County Executive Candidate Lee Weingart today. He has his big city club speech at the exact same time the governor is giving his state of the state address. I don't know which one will be the more boring and tedious, but they're going to be competing. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and it's Wednesday. We have Chief Political Writer Seth Richardson Happy Wednesday, all. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Hello, hello. <laughs> Hump day. Let's go with the blockbuster kind of story to start the podcast. Is Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb living up to his promise to close Burke Lakefront Airport? Laura, Susan Glazer has the story this morning. She does, and we don't have a definitive answer, but the finally, the people in power are seriously discussing this issue. Bibb is not talking on the record, basically, his spokesman, spokeswoman just said, you know, they don't have a comment right now. But during a campaign debate last fall, he said he favored an honest conversation about the future of Burke. And this is just the beginning. There's also the possibility of moving oversight of Hopkins and Burke, which are both owned by the city and the county-owned airport in Richmond Heights, to a more regional government structure. But they're going to start talking about Burke and its 450 acres of lakefront, which opened in 1947 and traffic has been falling ever since 2000. So so what's the gist of her story then? That that they're whispering about it, but there's nothing public? What What is the gist? Yeah, they're just beginning to have these conversations. And obviously under Frank Jackson, who was mayor for four terms, there was no discussion. It was a dead stop. We're not closing Burke. And now they can actually talk about it as a region, the Port Authority, the Greater Cleveland Partnership, uh, the, the airport itself, the mayor, I'm sure Budish is involved in these conversations about what is best for the region. Because right now there is no uh, base, you know, like no professional airport, air service that's running from Burke that closed during the pandemic. They're only seeing about 40,000 takeoffs and landings in 2021. That was the same as 2019. And they lose money. I mean, the deficit is projected to be $640,000 this year. That's a ton of money, especially when Hopkins is trying to stay viable, keep a lot of flights and figure out how to pay for a $2 billion overhaul. Well, you wonder how many of those takeoffs and landings are student pilots, too. I got to tell you, I'm a little bit troubled by the fact this is not happening in the public. This is a huge matter of public importance. It's something we've talked about for decades. And I would think you'd want to have this conversation with as much input as you can get, not be in some room somewhere having the beginning of talks. I agree with you. Obviously, I think everything is better in the public eye. Just look at redistricting. But I don't think we're ruling out public discussion. I think they're just saying, yeah, let's get the conversation started. You know, Bibb's only been mayor for two and a half months at this point. And so I think there will be discussions. Carrie McCormick was talking about it on the record with Susan Glaser, the commissioner of the airports for the city, Khalid Bahur actually talked on the record and said, you know, he's he's looking and he says, Burke has an economic benefit for the region. You know, the air show, um, the International Women's Air and Space Museum, which is inside the airport terminal. I mean, I don't know how many people go to the Women's Air and Space Museum every year. I don't really think that should be part of the, the big discussion. But I, I think... They're looking at what happened in other places. The last airport to close in Ohio was Cincinnati Blue Ash in 2012. And obviously, people always like to point to Chicago, Millennium Park, you know, which used to be Miggs Field. But nobody's talking about running down to Burke and like digging it up in the middle of the night to close it. 
Yeah, although they should. That should be part of the conversation as well. <laughs> Just get out the bulldozers, start digging. It, that's what did it in Chicago. The mayor right. sent out the bulldozers. They carved big X's in the runway, and they thumbed their nose at the FAA. And guess what? Planes still fly in and out of Chicago's other two airports. The world didn't end, and Chicago did not go bankrupt. I hope we see a good bit more public discussion on this before it gets too far down the road. Good job by Susan Glazer. It's Today in Ohio. Joe Blystone's challenge in trying to defeat Mike DeWine in the Republican primary for governor is overwhelming, but now Blystone has another big challenge about his campaign fund. Seth, big news about Blystone yesterday, although not unexpected. I guess the, the real word we should be using here is finally. Not unexpected at all, right? I think we've all kind of been waiting for some kind of ruling on this, and it came out that you know more than $100,000 in contributions um, to Blystone's campaign may violate the state's limit on cash contributions, right? That's a lot of money. Um, on top of that, there might be another $130,000 in contributions that have to be looked at, uh, plus uh, you know a thousand, a, more, a little bit more than $1,000 in in-kind contributions from corporations, which aren't allowed to donate to Ohio politics. So uh, he could be in some pretty serious uh, uh, jeopardy with this because that's you know he hasn't exactly raised a ton of money where he can move funds around or anything. So. Um, it, you know, it may be coming from his personal checkbook at this point, but uh, yeah, there could be some legal consequences for sure. Well, the other thing that merits discussion here is that if a guy can't even follow the rules of basic campaign finance, how is he ever going to follow the rules of being governor? This is basic stuff. You're not allowed to take contributions of a certain size. You're not allowed to take contributions from companies. And yet he did it anyway with abandon. Was this recklessness? Was it intentional? Is he desperate for money? Uh, it was probably more negligence than anything, although I was thinking about this. And while we, you know, I think we can kind of look at both the legal and political side of this. Right. And you look at the legal side and obviously there's some issues that, you know, are cause for concern, um, you know, for Blystone himself. Right. Politically, though, I sort of wonder if um, if, the, if this might not end up helping him in a way. Because you look at, okay, who did the complaint come from, right? It came from Scott Polins, who is a consultant who is working for Jim Renacci. Well, Jim Renacci and Joe Blystone are really going after that anti-DeWine uh, vote and have kind of you know butted heads quite a bit, right? And I, I think the general feeling is that Joe Blystone is doing better than Jim Renacci at this point. And one of the reasons that people like Joe Blystone, especially the grassroots, is because he sort of... Um, he's he's not a politician, so to speak, right? He he doesn't necessarily play by the rules. Now, the thing to remember is that those rules are laws, and there are legal consequences for those. But you know, I I, I could envision a scenario where people see this as you know the, uh, the the political elite trying to attack someone who's trying to upend the system. You know, there's there's some spin to be had there that um, c could potentially be to his favor, I guess. Uh, whether it's enough to get him elected, that's, you know, a, a bigger question. But uh, I, I, I guess in the political sense, I'm, I'm not sure how much it harms him. So Mike DeWine and Blystone had a bit of a mix-up, didn't they, recently? Because Mike DeWine won't debate Blystone? Yeah. Uh, over the weekend, there was a video that came out. And to be, to be clear, we don't have the audio of the video because it was during a, a livestock auction. Um, and in it, you see them kind of exchanging some words and then DeWine puts his hand on Blystone and, uh, Blystone kind of, you know, gets it off of him real quick. 
Uh, Joe Blystone said that DeWine told him that he was going to kick his ass. Uh, whether that happened or not, I, I, you know, again, we don't have the audio from it. I don't know. DeWine seemed to cop to it when asked by a reporter, you know, saying, hey, I was talking about, you know, in the election, which that that tracks, right? I don't really see um, Mike DeWine necessarily being the type of guy who's challenging someone to a fist fight. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it it was it was really bizarre when we. It's still bizarre to me, right? This whole because you know that you know we we think about dysfunction, and that's been really kind of highly localized, not necessarily highly localized, but generally coming from the Senate race, and then you see this sort of trickle into the governor's race and well, i think a lot of people think of dewine as kind of a you know a, like a professional politician for lack of a better term right he's he's been in this public uh public facing position before although we have seen mike dewine get angry during our editorial board oh, interviews and pound the table he's not some shrinking wallflower if somebody gets in his face he gets back in their face and and i get it blystone and renacy want more credibility and being on a stage with mike dewine would give them credibility mike dewine doesn't want to give them the credibility we talked about this before if i was mike dewine i wouldn't debate them either why give them that credibility um so i you can understand blystone's frustration right he wants attention Oh, no question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're if you're running for office and you're trying to challenge an incumbent and the incumbent won't debate you. Yeah, that's got to be incredibly frustrating because there is that um, it, it's just lingering there. Right. Where like, why won't you? Are you afraid? Are you afraid to stand up for yourself? Are you afraid to you know face me again? It's, it's a strategic decision. We've talked about it before. DeWine is, you know, pretty much every indication is that DeWine is winning this primary. Right. Oh, yeah. um, you know. Yeah, maybe in a one-on-one he would have a problem, but in when he's got three challengers, because we can't forget that you know Ron Hood is also in this race and hasn't really been doing anything, but we'll probably get you know votes here and there, right? He's he's a name, he's a known commodity, so yeah, it has to. It is, and I'm sure it's incredibly frustrating, right? And yeah, I don't want to say that Dewine's like a pushover or anything because it is a strategic decision. You know, if you're if you're winning, why are you doing it? You look at. You know, Tim Ryan over well, on the Democratic side was doing I, kind of the same thing. Yeah, but I think there's a little bit of a difference here. I, the, the, both Renacy and Blystone have been making absurd claims about DeWine and his and his Republican bona fides. So, so it's not just that they don't have much credibility and he's going to win running away. What they say is preposterous nonsense. A debate would be silly because of the the crazy things they would say. I mean, the Republican Senate debate is going to be the same way. Got to move on. It's today in Ohio. Who is proving to be the biggest roadblock to Aaron's Law, which would require schools to provide age-appropriate sexual abuse prevention instruction? Lisa, we have a fully, fully reported story today by Laura Hancock that gets into the, all the nuts and bolts of this law and what's blocking it. Yeah, it's, and it's pretty chilling. It's a chilling read, to be sure. The Center for Christian Virtue has several proposed amendments to House Bill 105, and a lot of them are kind of a handmade tale in, in uh, perspective. Uh, they, they want to amend this bill to say that schools should stress abstention from sex before marriage. Good luck with that. Uh, No visuals, no role-playing of sexual situations in K through 6 grades. No talk of consent 
really scary in grades 7 to 12. They also say that they cannot advise their students to withhold info from their parents. And uh, they say that, who is the, uh, they say that uh, Brenner, 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 I'm sorry. Um, They're saying that very few parents are guilty of sexually abusing children. So yeah, this is some scary stuff. And they can't demonstrate contraception use either. Let me ask you though, you know, when parents send their kids off to school, they're thinking they're learning math and writing skills and geography and history and, and the courses that generally go along with schools. And traditionally, those cultural and moral kind of lessons are left to parents or churches or other cultural institutions. So w- why is it so offensive to people if somebody's trying to say, hey, look, don't teach those lessons to my kids. I'll take care of that. I don't want the, the public schools doing that. I send my kids there to learn the traditional school subjects. Go ahead, everybody. Beat me up on that <laughs> I one. mean, whoa. I, I really want my kids to talk about consent in grades 7 through 12. Mm-hmm. I think that talking about it with your peers makes it a lot more meaningful if you're all hearing the same message than if I'm just talking to my kids about what consent means. And I think it's a healthy discussion. And the whole point of this law is to protect kids from sexual abuse. And I mean, there's just part of me that thinks, well, if the parents don't want their kids talking about that at school, then like, are they protecting them at home? Are they having these conversations at home? I I just, I I want to keep our kids at but let me. But what is the purpose of school? What, when did the schools become the center of this kind of social, cultural instruction? Well, that, I mean, then you're getting into all of the debate about social emotional learning, and that you know that has been a huge issue with school boards and you know parents and school board uh, candidates who say they just want their kids basically to learn the basic academics. But I think. I think the world is tougher and I think my kids have really benefited from learning about social emotional learning and 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 the fact that they were like learning deep breathing exercises in primary school and they know what the amygdala is and they try to calm themselves and I I honestly I think it's it's making them better humans. Do you get the sense that parents though some parents are resentful that this has all happened and they were never consulted about it that that for years they've been voting for school taxes and kids have been getting their subject treatment, but somewhere along the way, all of this material was inserted into the schools without a general public discussion. I mean, the, the schools are public institutions funded by public money. Do you, get, do you feel like maybe some parents feel like they're left out of that discussion? I mean, they might. I, I would say to get involved with their local school board and not make statewide decisions about everybody else's school. Lisa, what, 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 you're, you're, you're quiet now. What, what do you, where, where do you well, fall Well, here's this? the thing. Kids who are sexually abused by a parent or other family member, be it a sibling, an uncle, an aunt, whatever, they have nobody to talk to. And they're certainly not going to get any support from their house. So, I mean. I totally agree with you. You know, where are they going to go? And I think that we've seen this play out over the decades where kids, you know, aren't getting the help and support they need. There's nobody they can talk to, you know, outside of their family. And this is a way to do that. And I think a lot of parents don't like to talk about the birds and bees and maybe Mm -hmm. do it, you know, after their kids are possibly sexually active. I mean, I had sex okay. education in the 70s. It was in high school, granted, but we had it. 
Okay, I hope you see what I did there. I wanted that to be a provocative discussion yeah, right. about why this law is important, and so I played your devil's advocate but I do, I to do get wanna, you fired up, and it worked. I do want to to focus on something that Lisa said, that the majority of kids who are sexually abused, it's by someone they know and trust, by a family member, a coach, uh, someone in their church. And so I just, you can't, how do we protect those kids? Mm-hmm. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Because it continues to be the most important issue for determining the future of Ohio, we will keep talking here about the battle over redistricting. Some baby steps on Tuesday, Laura. Yes, and it's not like anyone got out their Crayolas and started, you know, divvying up the state on a big map. But during a Tuesday meeting, the Redistricting Commission hired independent mediators from the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals that will help resolve any inevitable disputes between commission members because you know they're going to be squabbling. And two out-of-state map drivers they hired, one was chosen by Republicans and one chosen by Democrats, they're going to be here by today so they can start working on this. I I think this is simpler than the Republicans want to make it out to be. Matt Huffman said, you know, we're trying to figure out how this works with seven of us with our hands on a mouse moving around like a Ouija board. Like, come on, Matt Huffman. Like, if you just took a map of Ohio, you look at the demographics and you look at the way the Constitution says you're supposed to draw the maps, I don't think it's that difficult. We're going to see the process play out in in public. You know, the danger of this dragging out as long as it has is it becomes so much noise. But mm-hmm. it's not. It, this is if we don't get this fixed, this state will continue to go down the toilet the way it's been with the crazy stuff that comes out of the fringe legislators. What we've seen these last four years has been frightening. And the only way to get back to an equilibrium centrist state, which Ohio is, is to fix the gerrymandering. It's it's so crucially important to the future of Ohio. You're you're completely right. The words equilibrium and centrist and the fact that we're a 54-46 split over the last 10 years. But you look at our representation and it's overwhelmingly Republican. And and we get these things that, you know, it's you have to live with because it's your state government. And I understand the noise. There are so many filings and so many court cases in the Supreme Court and Ohio Supreme Court and the federal courts that people are probably very confused over where it stands. But um, this is really important. And I hope people pay attention to it. And we still are trying to figure out the primary because of the May 3rd elections and Republicans are suing, saying we need to have it on May 3rd and they should just keep the old maps for another election. And it's just It's enough to make you want to pull your hair out. Look, if we didn't have gerrymandering, Bob Cup and Matt Huffman would not be the legislative leaders. They are clearly the bad guys in this thing from day one. They've been singled out by the Supreme Court. Everything they've done has been to countermand the best interests of Ohioans. It's how we have Bill Seitz as somebody who has power in Columbus because we have so many fringe people down there trying to do crazy things. This is important. We will keep talking about it. It's today in Ohio. What should we expect from Mike DeWine's State of the State address today, Seth? And I defy you to make this interesting. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I, I, you know, I, I don't know what we ever really learned too, that we ever learned too much from these. Right. Um, I guess maybe you learn a little about what what's on the um elected officials minds and the the messages they want to get out there um but yeah i mean i think i think we can all kind of guess what this is going to sound like right it's going to be very heavy on uh promoting intel the uh the deal to bring the chip manufacturer here 
Um, there will probably be some campaign fodder there. You talk about, uh, you know, anti-abortion bills that DeWine has signed. Um, you know, some of that red meat for primary voters because, you know, we talked about it earlier that, uh, yeah, he's facing a primary challenge, but, and he's, you know, looks like he's going to win, but he's still, you know, only hovering around 50 so percent or whatever when you look at some of the polls, right? And depending on how much trust you put into those. Um, but some stuff that's definitely, I, I would guess, is not going to come up is going to be gun legislation. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Pelzer, you know, said it in his story. And, you know, I'm actually kind, like, I'll say the one thing that, I will find interesting is his tone on jobs itself, right? Because it's going to be kind of hard for DeWine, I think, to focus on the past in this election, right? Because most of the time what happens with these is politicians get up and they say, I've done this, this, this. It's so great. The state of the state is good. The state of the state is strong, right? Nobody ever kind of comes out and really says, well, hey, we got some problems we got to work on, right? And you look at the job, you know, jobs in Ohio right now, which has been kind of a, you know, Republicans have been running on that forever, right? Smart politicians run on jobs if they're good on jobs. Well, the state is still down about 190,000 jobs since DeWine took office. So you can't really look to the past for that. So I would expect that this is going to be more of a a future-looking thing. Hey, we're going to get intel, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. Not necessarily what they've done. I can't imagine that it's going to be interesting because he, he's going to spin. He's going to, he will talk about intel, and he'll talk. He won't, you're right. He won't mention that I just made it legal for anybody in the state who's an adult to carry a gun without a permit. Um, and so it'll be very much a campaign speech, which those are never interesting. No. So I, I'll be surprised if anything comes out of this that's that's even a soundbite you'd want to quote. But we'll see. Maybe he'll surprise us. It's today in Ohio. Has an Akron judge tempered his demands upon First Energy for disclosing which corporate officers approved all the bribery? Lisa, I love this guy. I love him in this case. He's doing the people's business. And I would love to be a fly on the wall in federal judge John Adams' court today because he gave attorneys a noon deadline today to produce the name or names of the people who paid the bribes in the House Bill 6 scandal. He says if attorneys for First Energy Corporation don't cough up those names he may remove them from the case yeah i i think this is tremendous i i also think there'd be no need for this if the federal prosecutors had done their job and charged the first energy officers who paid for all the bribery because they broke the law the company has pleaded guilty to the bribery whoever made that decision is clearly guilty of a crime but because the federal prosecutors are so slowly dragging their heels, we have Judge Adams, and he will not be denied. He is saying today. Does there a time? Was it like noon, noon. today? Noon. They what? have until noon today. And he's, his first demand for these names was back on March 9th. So he's been, you know, on their their heels since then. And he says this whole case demands transparency. The public deserves to know, and there's no confidence when or when few details are made public in a huge scandal like this. So Lee Weingart was making his speech at the same time we're finding out possibly who approved the bribery and when Mike DeWine is making his speech, a further competition. Let's face it, which of those three stories will we all be paying attention to? <laughs> I can't wait till this one breaks. <laughs> All right, we'll see at noon. It's today in Ohio. What does Ohio's Republican Senator Rob Portman have to say about Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown? Does he support her, Seth? 
you know, after months of getting, you know, kind of more uh, uh, forceful and direct statements from Rob Portman, uh, seeing what he said about um, Ketanji Brown Jackson, you know, is very back to you know, his vintage Rob Portman, right, where he didn't say a whole lot. Um, which is kind of what we've been used to over the years, but uh, basically said he's, you know, still vetting her and waiting to see how, you know, she responds in uh, some of the testimony. Um, but the, the one thing that he brought up is that he was, you know, concerned about judicial activism is what he said, right? We hear that all the time with basically any time a Supreme Court justice comes up. Um, and he also asked about court packing and, you know, what, you know, her thoughts were on it. Didn't give too much insight into um exactly what she said on it or anything like that but he called it a good conversation uh whether that leads to him voting for her or not i i would i would lean probably no he's not gonna vote for her but uh i honestly just don't know but but what could possibly be the justification for not voting for her she's been confirmed to other positions she's not changed who she is there is no reason not to vote for her well, he voted against her for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So there's a, there's a history of not voting for her. Um, and I mean, since when do you, senators need justification to do anything? I don't think that, that let's look at the past decade. There hasn't exactly been a, uh, a record of that. Yeah, it's a sad statement. Yeah, it just seems like a lot of Republicans are hung up on the fact that she used to be a public defender, you know, and a defense attorney. I think that's what bothers Which is a lot of them. It, yeah, and it's kind of weird to like that. That is a sticking point, right? You think you'd want a uh, diverse range of people from the legal profession and whatnot, but um, yeah, I guess that that's been a sticking point. You know, we've seen some of the other stuff, right? The Ted Cruz's testimony yesterday was um, <laughs> bizarre, to say the least. It was very, I don't know, it was it was weird. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I want to say I don't know how Portman is going to vote. Um, maybe he has a, a change of heart having her on the Supreme Court. But, but but the difference is Cruz is playing to a constituency. The the, the Republicans that are speaking up or are trolling for votes, Portman's not running again. So he doesn't have to pander and, and play that game. And so... What in his conscience could he use to, to say no? Just, it's just a sad state of affairs. She's completely qualified. Biden picked somebody that really is unassailable, and so they are picking at little things, trying to make it sound like she's problematic when everybody knows she's not. And Portman doesn't have to do that. He could just do the right thing. Uh, and you're, I like your contrast between what he's saying about Ukraine and all of these powerfully strong position he takes and then we get mush you're listening to today in ohio all right what is the zoo planning for exhibiting the primates who reside there lisa people love zoo news this is a big expansion for the zoo yeah and very exciting uh the rainforest exhibit that currently exists at the zoo will be expanded to create the primate forest for the gorillas and orangutans that live there. It'll also be home to over 10,000 plants and 600 rainforest animals. When it's done, it'll be 140,000 square feet. It's going to be indoor, but they're going to have like a lot of natural light. It will seem like it's outside. There's no, um, 
estimate on when this will be finished or even started. But the zoo is partnering with the Cross Country Mortgage, and this will be funded mostly through philanthropy. So phase one will be the two-story Cross Country Mortgage Forest Gallery, which will have interactive technology and multi-level play structures for, for the residents inside. And as I said, lots of natural light. And then the Cleveland Zoological Society is actively fundraising for this project. You know, the, the current primate exhibit is depressing. You mm-hmm. go in there and you got the glass windows and it's they're just in small rooms. I have such mixed feelings when I go to the zoo. You know, it's fun to see the animals, but they're so cooped up. They just don't get to roam as they do in the wild. Uh, and that, the current one, is one of the more depressing things you go into. Mm-hmm. They do not seem happy there. So hopefully this will expand their habitat. I'd love to hear from primate groups about whether this plan is humane to the gorillas and to the primates. I'm not sure that they'll find that the square footage is. It'd be interesting to see what they have to say. Laura, we were trying to find that out yesterday. Did we get anywhere? We didn't get anywhere with it, but there's not a whole lot of details that the zoo has put out with this plan and they don't they didn't present it as like uh, state of the art for the primates it was more just like this is going to be great for the visitors so i think we're going to get a lot more information about what it's going to mean for the animals and we'll definitely be digging in then yeah, when they announced the tiger exhibit and when they announced the big elephant exhibit they talked about how it was going right. to be so much better for the animals it's odd that they did not do that here I, I totally agree. But, you know, the last time I've been in the rainforest, it's been a little bit, but it looked pretty dated. So it's cool that they are putting more money and expanding the rainforest because it's a great year-round destination in Cleveland. Yeah, and I'm probably the only one on this podcast who remembers when that was new. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember I was alive, I like, but I was taking a field trip there. All right, you're listening to Today in Ohio, and that does it for Wednesday. Seth, thank you. Lisa, Laura, thank you. And thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Thursday with another discussion of the news. 